Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Peter Schechter. I'm Senior Vice President for Strategic Initiatives at the Atlantic Council, and I'm also the director of the Adrian Arsh Latin America Center. Thank you for joining us uh, in this very timely event. And it's timely because two of the three cap members of the President's National Security Cabinet are traveling to Mexico this week. But it is also timely because we're in imminent danger of dismantling the North American experiment that we've built with Mexico and with Canada in the past 25 years. It's a mystery to me, and I suspect it's a mystery to many of you, how we got to this point of profound recrimination when in fact Mexico and the North American integration experiment of the past 25 years have been a huge foreign policy success. Today, the U.S.-Mexican border is the world's largest border of a developing country with an industrialized nation. And instead of tension and recrimination and reproach, the North American experiment has fostered a stable, safe boundary connected by trade, culture, and history, and $1.5 billion crosses the Rio Grande every day. Mexico and Canada are now two of our top three trading partners. NAFTA supports 14 million jobs in the United States. Combined, Canada and Mexico invested nearly $400 billion in the United States in 2015. And progress is not only commercial. The past two decades created a unique era of trust between our nations that has brought unprecedented security cooperation, intelligence sharing, anti-narcotics enforcement, anti-terrorism security happen daily. And proof of the reality of this partnership is found at Mexico's border with Guatemala, where at our request, Mexico's efforts to stem the flow of Central American refugees take an enormous burden off our border patrol. Today's rhetoric is forcing Mexicans everywhere to question the unquestionable. Did the country make a mistake 25 years ago by betting its future on North America? We saw massive marches last weekend against the United States. The leftist candidate Andres Lopez, Manuel, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has locked in the top spot in national polls. If we continue to antagonize Mexico, we risk our neighbor turning its back on us and turning, back, turning its back on decades of strategic cooperation. Today, as the two secretaries arrive in Mexico, and in the coming months, this center will continue to play a constructive role in suggesting ways to move this relationship forward. On March 7th, we will welcome Margarita Zavala, a leading candidate for president, and former secretary Michael Chertoff to discuss strategies for the future. And as we kick off today's discussion about the way forward, nobody can begin to do that job better and a very distinguished guest, a dear friend, and somebody who knows a thing or two about trade and U.S. jobs, Secretary Carlos Gutierrez. Thank you, Carlos, for opening this event. The Secretary's remarks will be followed by a panel discussion captained by my dear colleague and our center's director of the Latin American Economic Growth Initiative, Jason Marzak. We're lucky to have a panel of impressive experts, Paula Stern, our Atlantic Council board member and former chairwoman of the Chairwoman of the International Trade Commission, Peter McKay, a good friend and former Defense, Justice, and Foreign Minister of Canada, and finally, Rafael Fernandez de Castro, professor at Mexico City's ITAM and the Maxwell School for Citizenship and Public Affairs. 
Secretary Gutierrez needs no introduction, but very quickly, he served as Secretary of Commerce from 2005 to 2009 under President George W. Bush. During his time there, he helped advance economic relationships, enhance trade, promote U.S. exports. Secretary Gutierrez is now chair of the Albright Stonebridge Group. Previously, Secretary Gutierrez spent nearly 30 years with the Kellogg Company, a global manufacturer and marketer of well-known food brands, becoming its president and chief executive officer in 1999, the youngest CEO in the company's 100-year history. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Secretary Carlos Gutierrez. Good afternoon, and uh, thank you very much for having me on this uh, very timely meeting. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with uh, Peter Mackay, uh, Paula Stern. I want to thank Peter Schechter and Jason Marsak for the invitation. <clears throat> the, the discussion today is about NAFTA, but we know that there's a, a big elephant in the room that's called immigration policy. And I'm not going to get into that, but I think it's important that we just realize that we're talking about our free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. And the backdrop is this new immigration executive order that should be finalized uh, very soon. Uh, I think all the, the details are out, but that's going to add a level of complexity to this uh, that I don't think we are fully acknowledging. Um, Peter's going to discuss a lot of Canada and, and the Canadian context. I'm going to focus mostly on Mexico because it, it seems like that is the epicenter of what's going on here. Um, it's important to step back, and I know that we're going to talk a lot about the details and whether we renegotiate or whether we update, and uh, whether it's the labor chapter or the environmental chapter and rules of origin, and those are very important things, obviously. But I just I want to step back a little bit because there's a lot more at stake than just the rules of origin and, and who wins or loses on a specific product category. Um, we're, we're talking about a big strategic issue. Uh, I remember being in Mexico City a couple of years ago and, um, and just thinking about how the relationship has evolved and how there's a certain confidence in the relationship uh, whereby it's, it's becoming somewhat bilingual, bicultural, there are Ameri English words that have just creeped into the Mexican, uh, to, to the Spanish language in Mexico. Uh, there are Spanish words that have creeped into the U.S. language, cultures, food, uh, you name it. The relationship has never been better. This is what was on my mind. Today, you're talking about a level of anxiety in Mexico that we can't see from here. We hear about it, we read the papers, uh, but there isn't anyone in Mexico who isn't thinking about what's going on. So we've worked very hard to get here, and that relationship today uh, is at risk. And I think what we need to understand, <clears throat> and, and I, I trust that our government here in the U.S. will, will understand this, we cannot humiliate a country to the bargaining table. 
We can't get a country to negotiate with us by humiliating them. Maybe in business you can because it's all about the bottom line. But you can't quantify national pride. You can't quantify national dignity. And that's what's at stake here. And it's going to be extremely difficult um, for Mexico to do anything but take a combative response, take a combative position. Uh, and in many ways, it's our position and our tactics that have forced Mexico into a corner, and they have no option. We have given them no option. And it's not going to be an easy task. And I wouldn't push Mexico on that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call their bluff. Because you know as well as I do that if this means going into a recession for a couple of years, but we're going to keep our national sovereignty and dignity, that will happen. And I would hate to even test it. Uh, so we are creating the conditions for a presidential election in 2018 in Mexico where the winner could well be an anti-American, populist, anti-imperialist, what have you, in Mexico. Something we haven't seen in decades, decades, and decades. That would be a strategic issue. And I just, I, we need to have the wisdom to not go for a tactical victory that down the road will realize that it was a strategic defeat. And, you know, the, the, the uh, motivation for a quick tactical victory is always there. I just hope we have the wisdom to look down the road uh, a little bit. I, I started my career in Mexico, uh, so for me it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a country I know very well. Um, I, I was actually general manager of Kellogg, Mexico from 1983 to 1988, before NAFTA. I remember that in Mexico extremely well. Uh, we're talking about very nationalist policies, protectionist in many, many ways, uh, products that are imported today we couldn't import back then, uh, a sense that things had to be nationalistic, that they, they we, not open, but very nationalistic. And being on the corporate side of things, you could see the impact that that had on our ability to create jobs. 100% uh, inflation, a lot of people have forgotten that. But during that period when, when I managed the business, we had about 100% inflation on average. Uh, low growth rate, so high inflation, low growth rate. And we all remember this boom-bust cycle where approximately once every six years there'd be a major devaluation. That major devaluation would have devastating impacts on border towns, on border states, on jobs in the US, uh, on jobs in Mexico, on corporate balance sheets and corporate earnings, which in turn led to more downsizing and just a terrible vicious cycle. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen that for about 20 years. And that coincides with the NAFTA period. Today, what the three countries have built is, is really quite breathtaking. 
NAFTA is worth over $1 trillion, well over a $1 trillion. Uh, supply chains have been integrated throughout the three countries. Manufacturing supply chains and agricultural supply chains going on both sides of the border, being able to get produce to the countries on time so that it doesn't rot. We know how to do that. We can do that because we've been building this infrastructure for over 20 years. Logistics operations on both sides, computer systems. The NAFTA is digital. And the computer systems that have been also integrated across the three countries to consolidate information, all the things that you need to do to work the supply chain, to forecast sales, to invoice a customer. It's not like switching off a light that all of a sudden NAFTA goes away. These are billions and billions of dollars that have been invested in this infrastructure that we call NAFTA. 14 million U.S. jobs are tied to NAFTA. 14 million U.S. jobs. So as we approach this, uh, we need to keep that in mind. Geographic proximity always makes a difference. Uh, and you would expect that Mexico is the main export markets market for the majority of U.S. companies. And let me just explain that a second. 57,000 U.S. companies export to Mexico. Of those 57,000 companies, 94% are small and medium sized. So you're, you're talking about, and this is the essence of geographic proximity. If you start exporting, you might as well export to your neighbor. So a lot of jobs, a lot is at stake. Uh, I was hearing this morning, if you just take one example of the trickle effect and kind of the domino effect of something like this, we receive exports of avocados and tomatoes from Mexico. So a lot of families are working in that industry and the U.S. is a great market. Those are high value agricultural items. But they also happen to be in the states of Michoacan and Sinaloa. These are the states where we have seen the drug crime, and we, we've, we've seen the impact of, of organized crime in Mexico. What are those families going to do if they're out of a job? If you can't find a job in the avocado business, if you can't find a job in the tomato business, where else do you go? So we just have to keep thinking about and connecting dots and understanding that this is a lot bigger then how much are we paying for Mexican goods or how much are they paying for U.S. goods and how much are they buying and how much are we buying? Uh, Canada and Mexico are the top customers for U.S. products. So we are, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with the biggest thing we've got going. The world is regionalized. We keep talking about globalization and how globalization has hurt everyone it is still very much a regional world. The EU, in spite of Brexit, and, and one of the problems with Brexit, of course, is that the, the EU is the biggest market for British goods. Why? Because of geographic proximity, because they're there. Today, in Asia, China is leading the way toward what they call RCEP. Some people call it ASEAN plus three or ASEAN plus four. 
the 10 Southeast Asian countries plus Korea, Japan, and China in one big trading block without the U.S., without the U.S. dollar. That's the vision. It may not happen for seven years, for 10 years, but today as we speak, they're building roads going down through Vietnam, Laos, from China. They're getting ready. So let's look at the Americas. We are fragmented. We're splintered. There's, aside from NAFTA, there's CAFTA, ALBA, CELAC, I mean, Mercosur, you name it, the Pacific Alliance. There are a lot of different things, but there isn't one Americas. The crown jewel that we do have is NAFTA. And uh, I hope that we also think about the role that our region plays as we are competing with other regions in the world. Um, we would much rather have jobs stay here in the hemisphere than go to Asia. And that is a reality. And it becomes an economic reality and it becomes a national security reality. And again, I hope we keep that in mind. Energy supply chains, we have the opportunity to see a massive shift of wealth from the east to the west. If we could get our act together regionally and build energy supply chains, we have the oil, we have the gas. And this is the time when we can be doing that. This is a time when we can be negotiating that. By 2050, Mexico will be the seventh largest economy in the world. The seventh largest economy in the world, our southern neighbor. And Canada will always be one of the most developed per capita income economies anywhere. So NAFTA is not only important today, but it will get more and more important. NAFTA should be updated, okay? Let's, let's agree to that. The market has changed, the world has changed in 23 years. Uh, so yes, the labor chapter, the environmental chapter, we probably should look at rules of origin. Think about, you know, NAFTA was signed before the internet took over the world, right? So think about the digital economy, online marketplaces, the cloud, uh, the app economy, the internet of things, this is an area we can have, the U.S. can have a significant advantage if we can get to a point where we can negotiate a better agreement where it's not a zero-sum game, where one party wins, the other party loses. That's not what trade has been all about. It's been about growing the market. So I think the question that I would hope that we're asking as we go into these talks, whenever they start to happen, how do we make NAFTA stronger for all three countries? And how does North America better compete with the rest of the world? Those are really the two strategic questions. Everything else, I think, is tactics and politics and, you know, sort of uh, appealing to the political circumstances in individual countries. I think we should be working on bilateral agreements with Mexico on immigration. We should be working on bilateral agreements and trilateral agreements on border security. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with President Cedillo on a, a major study that we did to come up with a bilateral agreement for uh, low-skilled workers from Mexico. Because right now, low-skilled workers have to go to a black market. So we're essentially just outsourcing 
the labor that our companies need to a black market. Why not negotiate some kind of, a, of, a, of an agreement? Uh, those are the things that I think are possible. Those are the things that I think we should be focused on if we have the right attitude um, and not this idea that we're going to win and they're going to lose or we're going to show them or, you know, we're going to put our foot down. It's, we know from history, and history looms large in our relationship with Mexico, that that's not going to work. So I, I want to thank all of you for your interest in this. Um, I want to thank you for your leadership. I want to thank you for your commitment. But above all, I hope that we can be a voice of wisdom as this process starts, because there's an awful lot at stake, not just for next year, but 10, 20 years down the road. Thank you very much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Very good job, huh? Outstanding. Really, that's the best recitation of the entire situation. Very well done. Really. Thank you, Secretary Gutierrez, uh, for taking the time again to be with us today. And Secretary, for your important leadership um, on this topic at such a pivotal moment. Thank you very much for, for your comments and your insights. Uh, and thank you all of you, thanks to all of you for, for joining us today for this incredibly timely and, and important discussion. Uh, I'm Jason Marzak, the director of the uh, Adrian Arts Latin America Center's uh, economic, Latin American Economic Growth Initiative. And I'm going to be capturing the rest of our discussion today with these very three uh, esteemed panelists who are on the stage. The timing of our discussion today really couldn't be more on the mark. As Peter mentioned at the outset, uh, tonight, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and Secretary of Homeland Security John Kelly will arrive in Mexico with a uh, objective of trying to uh, calm uh, the, the waters. I'm sure we can all guess what will be part of the topics in tomorrow's meetings, security, migration, the economy, border issues. But of course, this will be against a backdrop where a once constructive relationship is now under threat. And politics, politics especially on both sides of the border now, will be as important as policy or potentially more important in finding common ground. And it comes just over a week after Prime Minister Trudeau came to Washington, a visit that again raised questions if one potential casualty of this new US approach could be broader North American integration. That would of course be a huge loss uh, from US jobs lost to our strategic footing weekend. Intertwining the three North American economies simply keeps us safer, as we'll discuss today. And we have an all-star panel to do so, beginning on, uh, on your right, uh, Peter McKay. Peter is someone who I've had the pleasure of working with for the past few years, and I can say that every good thing you've heard about Peter is correct. Um, he is one of Canada's premier thought leaders who has held an impressive number of posts in the Canadian government. This includes serving as the Minister of Defense for six years and as Minister of, Just Minister of Foreign Affairs for a year and a half. Most recently, he was Canada's Attorney General and Minister of Justice until November 2015. Peter is currently a partner in the Baker McKenzie Toronto office, a firm with which we have had the good fortune to collaborate with on a number of different conferences and events. Thanks, Peter, for, for coming down for this. Next to Peter is Paula Stern. Paula is the founder and chairwoman of the Stern Group, which she founded in 1988. 
She's also truly a wealth of knowledge, and I'm privileged to call Paula a dear colleague as Thank Paula you. serves on the Atlantic Council's Board of Directors. As far as Trey goes, I think it's hard to find someone with both the experience and expertise of Paula. That's why she's always one of my first calls on any trade-related matters. Paula served as chairwoman of the U.S. International Trade Commission and as commissioner for nine years, analyzing and voting on over 1,000 trade cases involving a broad range of industries and issues. And sitting next to me is Rafael Fernandez de Castro. Rafael is a professor at both Mexico City's ITAM and also Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. Uh, Rafael, you're really the, the, the ultimate uh, expression of a strong U.S.-Mexico relationship. Uh, I've had the pleasure to know Rafael, work with him for a number of years. He's a prolific writer as well, having written and co-edited more than 30 books on Mexico-U.S. relations, U.S.-Latin American relations, and Mexico's foreign policy. Uh, so definitely somebody who knows what he's, what he's talking about. Rafael was also a foreign policy advisor to former President Felipe Calderon. So thank you all very much for, for joining us. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next half hour or so taking a deep dive on a number of different issues, beginning with tomorrow's meetings in Mexico and then moving on to North American linkages as a whole, the future of NAFTA, short to long-term repercussions of today's environment, and the path forward. And we're going to leave plenty of time for questions from everybody who is, who is joining us here today. So it's a lot to cover, and I've asked the panelists to keep comments short and warn them that if the comments go long, I'll, I'll jump in to keep the conversation uh, flowing, since it's a lot of ground to cover. Let's, let's start off with, with, with tomorrow's visit, actually, that both, both secretaries arrive in, in Mexico City uh, tonight. Um, border security, law enforcement, cooperation, and trade are going to be at the top of the agenda with their counterpart meetings in Mexico. Uh, they'll be meeting with uh, President Peña Nieto, as well as the secretaries of Interior, Foreign Relations, Finance, uh, and National Defense. Perhaps, um, Peter, starting off with you, given the, the new low in the relationship, um, and I think President Trump's personal interest in driving this agenda, what, what do you think can be realistically uh, accomplished at this at this point? Well, firstly, I, I think uh, I want to thank Peter and, and yourself uh, and the Atlantic Council for the invitation. I, I think, firstly, uh, it, it's been clear to us from a Canadian perspective that the president's uh, quite serious criticisms of NAFTA have been very much aimed, undoubtedly, in the direction of Mexico. Uh, the visit of President. Um, Trump with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau here last week, I think, demonstrated that, that, uh, that the word that he used was tweak, not tweet, tweak, uh, when it comes to the relationship, and, and people jump when he tweets. Uh, with respect to the, your question in this upcoming meeting, I think it's an opportunity to maybe step back. And the U.S. officials, uh, Tillerson and Kelly, who are going, uh, have an opportunity to hone in on uh, legitimate concerns around security. And I think if, if they go back to the, the, the basics of the security as being perhaps the, the primary concern that's been expressed by this administration, that may allow them to, I dare say, rethink uh, some of the rhetoric, um, particularly around the wall. And I, I fully expect we'll have a discussion on the wall. Um, and at the same time, I think it will allow Mexican counterparts to make a very strong case for the continuation of this unprecedented relationship here in North America, uh, how integral it is to the success of all of our countries, 
from an economic perspective, but from, from an overall quality of life perspective. Let, let's go back to basics here. To make America great again, you have to make NAFTA great again. And so I agree with many of the comments, all of the comments, frankly, uh, of Secretary uh, Guterres, who, who spoke of the need to modernize this agreement. And so I think this, this opening salvo uh, in this visit tomorrow is a, a tremendous opportunity to recast what has perhaps been a, a wrong-footed approach and go back to the basics of, of security, uh, improving some of the concerns that, that do exist in, in a, an agreement that is 23 years old when it comes to NAFTA, and not retrench or double down on, on some of the, the rhetoric, but really hone in on just how important NAFTA is. And, and I know that that was part of the approach that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau took last week when he was here in Washington. Paul, what do you, on, on, the, on the trade front, obviously, they're, they're, uh, Secretary Guajardo is not part of these, 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 uh, these, uh, these discussions tomorrow. So what do you, what do you and trade is, uh, in addition to, to, to the wall and, and, and border issues and, and law enforcement cooperation is obviously front and center. Uh, what do you see being realistically accomplished uh, 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 tomorrow uh, on that level, um, whether it's behind the scenes, what do you see as, as, a, as far as maybe potentially public statements that could come out? Uh, obviously taking into, into account the fact that the folks that are traveling from the U.S. side are our Homeland Security Secretary and our, and our, and our, and our Secretary of State. Well, I'm glad you asked about trade um, because uh, uh, we heard about one elephant in the room, which was immigration in the opening <laughs> statement. But I really think the uh, elephant in the room is trade. So maybe there are two elephants here. Mm -hmm. But at least uh, so the fact room. is the president uh, of the United States of America uh, ran successfully on a trade agenda. Um, he said two things that he wanted to get done. Uh, one, he wanted to reduce the trade deficits. And the second, he wanted to throw out um, those, quote, dumb agreements that were made by, quote, stupid officials. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, NAFTA was uh, numero uno in the, the list and said on day one um, he would um, <clears throat> move uh, against both the NAFTA and the TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which um, had not yet been ratified um, by Congress, but had been negotiated. Now, he did that with the TPP, and with NAFTA, it's very clear he's had uh, discussions already with the Mexican president. Um, those uh, phone calls and personal conversations went badly. Um, and I think that the mission of uh, the two secretaries from the United States who were going there, um, Tillerson and um, Kelly, um, is to try to um, uh, smooth uh, and, 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 and uh, deal with the backlash, the nationalistic backlash, which is making uh, uh, President Peña Nieto's uh, position um, even uh, more difficult to negotiate a new NAFTA. So it's one is uh, to just kind of smooth down the, the feathers. The other thing I would like our secretaries to do in, in this visit is to p put the trade uh, issue um, in a context 
Um, and I think we should do that here, yeah. as, as a matter of fact, as well, um, as thinking folks. Uh, trade agreements are a subset of trade policy. Trade policy is microeconomics. What drives the trade deficits, uh, what drives the disruption that comes from competition, globalization, technological change, which has affected our voters and disaffected our voters um, and made them anxious, um, is all these other matters that are both macroeconomic as well as technological. And so we need to put this NAFTA agreement, which is old and needs fixing, into a proper context mm -hmm. uh, economically. Otherwise, we are, as a, na as a nation, and with our neighbors, Canada and Mexico, we'll find ourselves in a impoverished, reduced state, lower growth, lower productivity, and we will not be uh, gaining on the competition uh, with the rest of the world that we had enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, I, th I, I think you, you make an excellent point of what can be accomplished by Tillerson and Kelly specifically with regard to trade. And one of those is smoothing over, as you said, the nationalist backlash. And as Secretary Gutierrez mentioned yes. in the beginning, that you can't humiliate a country to the to the bargaining table and we can't underestimate national pride in, in Mexico. So the extent to which they can do it. And I think also important to emphasize that these are two men who um, who know Mexico very well, who have uh, deep relationships uh -huh. with the Mexican government uh, 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 from, from uh, Secretary Tillerson's time as head of ExxonMobil and Secretary Kelly's time as, as the head of U.S. Southern Command. Um, and that these agreements, trade agreements, are also strategic agreements. Our first agreement with, was with Israel, not because of the importance necessarily of the Israeli economy <laughs> to the United States, but the strategic imperative of that. Rafael, uh, Paula mentioned the 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 the, um, the the political environment that exists in Mexico right now. The political environment that Secretary Tillerson and Kelly will will, will see when they when they arrive in Mexico City tonight. If you could compare the political tenor between the two countries right now to a past moment in this relationship, um, what would that be? Um, and is there what is there a historical precedent for the point in which the relationship is right now? Uh, let me start by saying something about uh, uh, my recollection of, of early trips of, of newly appointed uh, uh, secretaries in the U.S. I remember vividly, I, I was working for President Calderon, February 2009, Janet Napolitano, Homeland Security Secretary, came to Mexico. A few weeks uh, later, Hillary Clinton, newly appointed Secretary of State, came to Mexico. The meetings went very well, and they were key for the, uh, for the good communication between Hillary Clinton and our foreign minister, and also with President Calderon. The visit of, of Hillary Clinton was amazing. Uh, she came very well prepared. President Calderon was very well prepared. And for example, during the meeting, we solved a very important issue. Through the Merida Initiative, uh, we were getting some helicopters, Black Hawk helicopter for the Mexican military. They were coming in 2014. <laughs> President Calderon was leaving office in 2012. Thanks to Hillary, the helicopters came that year, 2009. So these early trips help a lot, especially to understand the complexities of this. To me, the narrative that Mexico needs is that we're the friend, we're the ally, the southern ally, we're not the enemy. So I'm pretty sure that both secretaries will 
come to Mexico and they will understand, they already getting prepared, the complexities of, 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 the, of the relationship with Mexico. I will say I never thought that in my lifetime I would see what I'm seeing. Trump has been amazing. He has created a, a, the perfect consensus in Mexico. From the far right to the far left, we all hate Mr. Trump. Uh, he made Mexico a political piñata in the election. He made our heroes, the migrants. I mean, uh, he called them things. I mean, uh, so it's, uh, I mean, I, I will say, uh, and if you want to draw a comparison, I will say, I will compare him to Ambassador Henry Lane Wilson in 2011. This is in, this is in the popular imagination in Mexico. Henry Lane Wilson in 1911, he was an ambassador who plot against the, the Mexican Revolution, and he plot against the assassination of Francisco I. Madero. I would say we will compare him with Mr. with President Polk, who sent the U.S. troops to invade Mexico in 18. 46. I mean, I have never seen this consensus in Mexico. Mexicans are rallying around the, the flag. And yes, I mean, there's two politicians that have benefited of, of Trump. Of course, Andres Manuel López Obrador. I mean, he's raising, I mean, he has increased seven or, or eight points, mm -hmm. according to Alejandro Moreno, a pollster that I still trust, because nowadays it's hard to trust a pollster. And, uh, and I will say, President Peña Nieto has also uh, uh, received a push. Why? Because, I mean, Trump is, the, is, is the, the, the public enemy. Not only that, I would say Peña Nieto has find, once again, a sense of purpose. He has given the, 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 the U.S.-Mexico uh, relationship a sense of urgency. Uh, he made a very important change in his cabinet, and I would say his focus. Yeah. Once his focus, he has purpose, he's doing fairly well. Uh, this is the end, I mean, we're in the five year of, of his administration. The political times are coming to Mexico, but I will say Peña Nieto and AMLO, they have benefited a lot from the way Mexicans hate Mr. Trump. So perhaps unknowingly uh, unleashed a variety of forces. For folks who don't know, uh, Andres Manuel Opus Obrador is a, will be a candidate for the Mexican presidential election, which will occur in, uh, in mid-2018. Peter, you want just, to jump I, in there? I just wanted to, to underscore um, that you know, throughout the history of, of North America, Mexico, Canada, United States, there have been other polarizing figures, let's, let's be honest. Uh, th this, this may be a new standard. Uh, but personal relationships <laughs> in politics, personal relationships in politics uh, matter in the extreme. Uh, following on, on your example, I recall uh, early days in my tenure as, as foreign minister, meetings with uh, Patricia Espinosa mm -hmm. and, and Secretary Rice. And there have always been outstanding issues, water issues uh, between Canada and the United States, trade issues, softwood lumber, uh, and, and similarly with Mexico. But the ability to sit down and, and have an open, honest discourse, develop trust among ministers, not, not only from the very top, but line departments, uh, U.S. governors, Mexican governors, premiers in Nova yeah. Scotia, chambers of commerce, those relationships matter as well. And so I, I don't think at, at this early stage uh, we, we should sound too much alarm. Yes, there has to be pushback. Yes, the early signals and, and the list of priorities that President Trump has put out there, particularly around trade, are cause for alarm. But 
I think you're going to see in, in the coming days, and tomorrow may be a, a good example of how these ministers make a connection with their opposite number and allow people a little breathing room to step back from some of these positions because in, in my estimation we have to move away from the personal and back to the practical about what is going to pull the economy forward collectively in North America because of the tremendous competition that we will face uh, from Asia Pacific and, and other parts of the world. Uh, we have seen you know, events like Brexit that have also caused tremendous discord in, uh, and future elections obviously in the European Union pose that threat as well. But Theresa May's visit with, uh, with President Trump is an example of a relationship that could be rekindled in terms of the U.S.-Great Britain mm -hmm. relationship. I think it's worth mentioning that uh, the United Kingdom, now as they extricate themselves from the, the European Union through Brexit, there's a lot of unknowns, but there is a possibility to renew and perhaps establish trade relations with Great Britain for Mexico, Canada, and the United States. And so from every situation comes opportunity. And there was a very good visit yesterday by, by the Mexican team, I will say Luis Videgaray, the foreign minister, and the trade minister, Mr. Idefonso Guajardo, they went to Canada. And there's great news. I mean, apparently, Canadian, the Canadian foreign minister said, yes, we, we, we will go ahead trilaterally. Yeah, this right. great, the said, news we was very well received in Mexico. Yeah. So again, this and, early visit matters. Yeah, and, 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 and that was, that's important. Paul, I want to go to you on, uh, on, on the importance of the North American integrated market, but just a quick follow-up there for you, Peter, on, on Prime Minister Trudeau's visit last week, right? That there was a lot of concern after that visit um, about uh, where relations might, the, 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 a lack of kind of reinforcement of the importance of North America as a whole and then uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, freelance statement about uh, um, you were showing that NAFTA negotiations must take Canada, Mexico cannot want to negotiate separately and the importance of NAFTA. So we're seeing kind of different signals, I think, from the Canadian side. That's right. There was tremendous anxiety um, in the early days of this presidency. This visit was, uh, was watched very closely. There, you know, our prime minister removed with his arms and legs intact. <laughs> and many people, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric about this being Bambi meets Godzilla. It didn't happen. <laughs> it, uh, it worked out okay. There was a collective sigh of relief. However, uh, there were signals still about NAFTA that were there. There was expressions of concern around the border. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll deal with them over time. And I, I think that's, that, that's the reality. We have to get down to the, the hard facts the, the tremendous advantages that can be laid out in, uh, in very specific terms of this agreement. And, you know, modernizations around things like dispute resolution mechanisms, rules of origin, those things can be and should be dealt with because of the, the, the many changes that have yeah. happened since this agreement was put in place. Paula, there, there's the, the, the value chain integration that has incurred in North America as a result of NAFTA has, has it's under, uh, not discussed as much, but it's really allowed our global exports to be more economically competitive. So what are the risks in the United, to the United States if we break this up? Um, what, what does this mean for, for China and for China's position in the world uh, with, that, with a, a less competitive North, unified North America? Yeah, well, the, the integration which has occurred um, and accelerated, um, facilitated by the NAFTA, 
um, really started with uh, U.S.-Canada on right. the auto agreements. That's right. Um, and which then became a U.S.-Canada agreement more generally. But autos had dominated, I think, um, also the NAFTA considerations. Once the U.S., Canada, and then Mexico got into um, the final NAFTA. And what we've seen is a dramatic um, shift in which um, the automobile industry in this country, which was being battered, if you will, by Japanese uh, competition, uh, 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 was able to steady itself. Um, it engaged not only using the NAFTA rules, but were um, uh, during the same period saw the increase in technology, which allowed um, the uh, supply chains um, to span the borders uh, very, very quickly. There's no question that um, uh, the technology has had a uh, enormous uh, disruptive effect on manufacturing jobs mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, in the United States, and I presume Canada has uh, certainly felt uh, the, the, the similar uh, situation. But we in the United States manufacture, our manufacturing production is higher than it has ever been, um, but the number of manufacturing jobs is the lowest since the end of World War II. Right. Um, so what you've seen is a shift and the shift also was occurring in Mexico. And so you saw Mexicans who had been uh, eking out a living agriculturally on small plots being attracted to a new factories that were being invested in Mexico. So that uh, the combination of the technology, uh, the combination of um, uh, lower wages, in Mexico for these, manu for these factory jobs um, uh, saw the capability uh, of both the uh, auto industry and other manufacturers to compete with the tigers of Asia, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, um, and, and, and et cetera. So um, that has been, I think, a tremendous North American success. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, uh, agriculturally, where and agriculture, is, we in the United States enjoy a great surplus. Um, we export uh, around the world, but in particular vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Mexico. And um, that uh, is, is being, if you will, jeopardized by um, the future of whether we will have a NAFTA agreement that all three nations can agree to. Um, so we've seen uh, you know, shifts that are both technological as well as lubricated, if you will, um, by uh, these NAFTA agreements. And it's lifted millions of people out of poverty. Let, let's millions be frank. And, the trade, and 14 million jobs that depend on right, it. Right. The, the integration of, of both economies. And Paul is absolutely right. There are Canadian auto part manufacturers now operating in Mexico very successfully. Yeah. And it, it, it has also, and, and uh, I think others may speak to this much more authoritatively than I, but it has improved labor standards mm -hmm. across the board. Yes. Yeah. It has had a big impact uh, in, in terms of bringing people into 
a more modern, more lucrative quality of life in terms of how they can employ themselves, feed their families, and, and contribute to their communities. Meanwhile, we, not, did not, not, we, we did not deal here at home in the United States adequately with the disruption uh, and the acceleration of the disruption that comes about through the technological dynamism. Yeah, that's another point, Rafa, go ahead. Well, I, I will say that, yes, yeah, NAFTA had a lot of spillovers into, into Mexico, into the relationship, and, uh, and I will say one of those was environmental uh, norms. Because, because of NAFTA, Mexico started to really implement mm. the environmental laws, and it's, 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 it has helped Mexico a lot. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's not only about trade, it's not only about jobs, but also it's about all, also about, for example, diplomacy. Another very important spillover of NAFTA, it was Mexican diplomacy. Mexico decided to play the Washington game because of NAFTA. We decided to move our embassy from the 16th Street, where now we have a very nice cultural institute, to Pennsylvania Avenue, so that I mean, to signify that we're close to the White House, that we're here mm -hmm. to affect decisions, and 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 all that is at stake now with Mr. Trump. But I think, and I think one of the big challenges on on, on NAFTA is the fact that the you know four, nearly 14 million Americans whose jobs depend on NAFTA, most of them probably don't even realize it, or the or the or the five million that depend on U.S.-Mexico trade because of as we we're saying the, the integrated nature of supply chains. Uh, that, that any kind of disruption to this would have severe consequences across the economy and people just don't necessarily realize it. Well, if I, want I could to just add want... to that, it's not just the, you know, the the making the stuff, it's also delivering the, the, and, and servicing. It's the railroads. Um, the... And, and so the, it, it is um, a, a, uh, uh, the services as well as manufacturing, which also go into this whole component of a, of a yeah. healthy North North. North American economy. I want to get, I want to get beyond economics, but, okay. but I, want to, I want to, before we do that, because I'm in the interest of time, just drill down a little bit more on, on, on NAFTA. And in the current environment, uh, uh, Secretary Gutierrez mentioned about not being able to humiliate a country to the negotiating table. Uh, the national pride that has now been unleashed in, in Mexico as a result of discussions. What, what, Paula, what, what could be some of the, the, the points forward for modernizing NAFTA, well, uh, I, especially in this current political context? Yes, I mean, I think that uh, the, the political context is about jobs. And uh, as long as we can um, see uh, that even though there is uh, increased productivity that comes about, um, and as long as we have a system in place for helping those who are inevitably disrupted, by change, um, uh, I, I think it, it can be a win. Um, but it, it, the, um, the, the um, problem, as I said, is I think we've really neglected that. We haven't talked about human capital. We haven't, and, and, and so what, what Trump really managed to tap into was, uh, was um, uh, this, this neglect. Um, I haven't seen, by the way, however, uh, the president talk about this. And I think that uh, no matter what he negotiated, whatever the terms of a new NAFTA might be, uh, he has got to wrap it into an you know adjustment plans for retraining community colleges, mm -hmm. uh, digital uh, literacy, 
um, all the kinds of preparation um, which these, uh, his voters and, and the nation as a whole uh, are, need. And I, that's the case in any country, but we uh, are, if you will, been the leader. We are setting the, the pace now. This is what Trump has put as, as his number one issue to negotiate these trade agreements. I happen to believe that you could take this old 23-year-old uh, agreement and really pull out the things which were way too controversial from the TPP negotiations um, and really see that TPP in those seven years where uh, 12 nations negotiated, uh, dominated, if you will, economically by Canada and the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, together and Mexico making up, if you will, at least a third of the TPP countries. And that they were able to agree on new rules on environment, new rules on labor. They were able to agree on new rules that had not even existed uh, with regards to services, intellectual property, digital trade, uh, all kinds of um, matters that had not even been in our minds or adequately politically gelled in our systems uh, uh, a quarter century ago. So I think it, uh, the president, frankly, could make lemonade out of lemons um, <laughs> and, and, and quickly um, borrow uh, where you had seen agreement between the three nations, Canada, U.S., and Mexico, already, and, uh, and really come out and say, I have thought of the future. I'm not just thinking about uh, voter, voters who were disrupted because they had some jobs in manufacturing and they didn't come back when right. productivity put them out of business. Of, of course, he couldn't mention the words. That, he couldn't say that any of this came from the TPP negotiations themselves, but barring a lot of the, mm -hmm. the themes. Now, but Peter, you know, Peter, let me ask you a question about Canada, right? So there's Just before that, I mean, the TPP negotiations that were prolonged, protracted. Yes. Uh, similarly, Canada... Uh, embarked on a comprehensive economic trade agreement with the European Union, yes. a long process, nine years mm -hmm. in, in its final, final uh, format. What that tells you, though, is, is a very important, often unspoken truth, and that is that in all of our countries, Mexico included, we have some very capable professional public servants who have their A-game right now when it comes to trade discussions, mm -hmm. ready to engage. That helps in the detailed, mature, real, not fake news, discussion about trade. And you know, I, I think that's going to be very important. You, you can't negotiate these things in 147 characters. It has to be done. <laughs> or 140. Right, or 140. Maybe it's maybe the, ex well, the exchange in Canada makes a difference. Right, exactly. <laughs> what I'm saying is that we have some really, really capable people, other than just you know the political figures who will be involved in these discussions. I have a lot of confidence, having spent time in government, in those individuals who are engaged, who are serious, who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, frankly, out of the, the glare of, uh, of the public eye. And you know, I, I think when we get back to all of these important elements and considerations, we're going to be able to make those improvements. Yeah. You're right, Peter. I believe the Mexican team it has a lot of experience. I mean, some of them, they've been there as Edilfonso Guajardo, the secretary, for 25 years. Uh, he was a NAFTA negotiator, so he has lots of experience. <laughs> then he went into politics, so now he's a seasoned polit politician as well as a, as a very good negotiator. And of course, they were negotiating TPP. By the way, Canada and Mexico, they team up a lot during TPP, uh, sometimes off and on to balance the U.S. power. So it seems to me that that's why 
to remain trilateral will be so important for 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 the, the, for the challenge. I want to reinforce on, the on that trilateral. I really think it's so important, and and therefore Canada plays an incredibly important role here. Canada for it is, is, pivot, is, is pivotal yep. um, because uh, this will set you know, the stage for the next 25 years or mm -hmm. 50 years. What is our trade architecture? Our trade architecture, which has been a winning architecture since the end of World War II, um, was to make win-wins and to in increase the, the, uh, uh, the, the economic pie, if you will, by reducing the barriers at the border, very briefly. Um, but Canada is so important and played such an important role um, I, I think of Sylvia Ostry, who is your, uh, had, had led the, 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 the charge for so many years intellectually in Canada to assure that Canada was part of the quad. What was the quad? That was U.S., Japan, Europe, and Canada that pushed, if you will, um, many of the rules of the road, commercial rules of the road, uh, at the World Trade Organization and its predecessor, the GATT. Now, those rules of the road uh, have ha brought us to the kind of economic level that we have had mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. But again, I want to emphasize that's not enough. We, each of our nations, have to worry about those who were disrupted by this turbocharged economic uh, uh, system that we are in, yeah. new business models, new dig digital world. Uh, but on the trade side, and that's why I say it's just microeconomics, and it's just really smart negotiators. But um, it's it, it's essential, um, but it's not enough. Trade architecture is there, so the the, the, the skeleton is there, very strong. The bones been. are there. Well, uh, some of the same it. individuals. Uh, we've seen our former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney emerge very prominently mm -hmm. in this discussion around NATO. He was he attended the meeting yesterday, attended by the Mexican Foreign Secretary and Christian Freeland, spoke very positively, said they're going to be difficult <laughs> negotiations, as they were in the beginning. Yeah. And I, I do come back to a, an often referred to expression about security trumping trade, and that's taken on a whole new <laughs> meaning. <laughs> But Canada has this existing NORAD relationship, our NATO relationship, our G7 relationship with the United States of America, but we also have uh, tremendous ties with Mexico that go back decades as well. Of course. You, you mentioned the auto pack, but th this is a relationship that it has been cultivated, it has ebbed and flowed, but I, I put a lot of faith in the leadership as well as those professional public servants not only NAFTA, but the, the Acid Rain Treaty is another example mm -hmm. that would not yeah. have happened yeah. were yeah. it not for the personal relationship between Ronald Reagan and Brian Mulroney. I want, I want, to, I want to, Peter, I want to get back to, to, to NAFTA again, the specifics of, from the Canadian perspective, um, that there's, you know, there's a lot, of, a, a lot of folks here in this room are very familiar with what the Trump administration wants out of NAFTA, uh, the potential modifications. But on the, from the Canadian side as well, if when, when NAFTA is open to be modernized, there's a number of things in, in the agreement that are not serving Canada's interests well, and that Canada's going to be coming to the negotiating table to fight for for, for changes. What, what, are, what are some of those? Well, one of them, I, I suspect, will be access to some of the infrastructure projects that are going to be uh, presented. I mean, this is, this is yet to be really unpacked in terms of how that will impact the American economy, but there seems to be a lot of indications that there will be restrictions placed on Mexican and Canadian participation in infrastructure building. They need 
they're going to need labor. They're going to need Canadian softwood lumber, uh, other products that will be part of building the infrastructure that uh, President Trump has spoken to. Let's not forget that he's a businessman, uh, a contractor. I think he owns a golf course. Uh, he, he's going to, I think, one or two at least, quickly come to the realization that uh, you can't go it alone in the enormity of the type of infrastructure that he's speaking about. The dispute resolution mechanism has also been contentious. Uh, we've seen it break down over the, the 30 years in the Canada-US relationship. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess putting on my justice hat for a moment, it, uh, it strikes me that pulling back from the independent dispute resolution mechanism that's entrenched in NAFTA and going to the American courts may not be the best idea. You have to be careful what you ask for, mm -hmm. uh, as we've seen in recent decisions coming from your courts. So the independent arm's length dispute resolution mechanism I think has worked well overall. Uh, you know, changing the rules of the game significantly at this point is where we'll get bogged down. If it's tweaking, if it's updating, modernizing, including things like IP and currency and, manipulation, and currency manipulation is be those a major things issue. can be worked out. Yeah. Now, now, Rafael, what are some of the there there the U.S.-Mexico relations we're talking about extends far beyond NAFTA. Right? Mm -hmm. Incredible amounts of intelligence sharing, cooperation at the at the at the at the U.S.-Mexico border as well as at the Mexico-Guatemala border. Um, uh, El Chapo was extradited to the United States just the week before President Trump took office. Just a hu huge amount of cooperation at the at the uh, at the agency level, as we're talking about before, between governors and mayors and whatnot. What are some of the cards that Mexico could potentially play to hold its position vis-a-vis -vis the United States uh, with regard to the NAFTA discussions? I would say very important one, the, the strategic one is, I, I would say that uh, the Northern Triangle of Central America, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, it really has become a Syria of the Americas. I mean, the levels of violence in El Salvador is like Syria. And the level of, I mean, the, the lack of economic, economic opportunity is like Syria. So I believe that Mexico is the essential partner of the U.S. to try to control that, uh, that problem and to improve Central America, especially the Northern Triangle. Uh, let, let, let's put it this way. Out of 10 Central Americans living in Central America, and by the way, the last two years, the, what we call the OTMs, other than Mexicans, they, there's more OTMs trying to come into the U.S. through the Mexican border than Mexicans. Mm -hmm. So the, the yes. flow of Central America is, is now larger than the Mexicans, and we could discuss why is that. But so far, out of 10 Central Americans trying to come to the U.S., Mexico is deporting five, the U.S. is deporting three, and two are making it into the U.S. So Mexico is a key ally on that. So strategically, I mean, I don't see a way for, for the U.S. coming and, and try to improve conditions in, in Central America without Mexico. So mm -hmm. again, we're a key ally. Then I will say, uh, economically speaking, uh, I will say especially the four border states, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, for them, the top export destination is Mexico. Uh, those four states have made 25% of the U.S. economy. California is huge. So, so I don't see uh, those four states without NAFTA. So it seems to me that, that is, I mean, the border states will come uh, to Mexico. I believe 
Time is on behalf, I mean, it will help Mexico because the natural allies of Mexico will come out. That's how we see. And uh, so far, the narrative is that we will renegotiate NAFTA. We know it's going to take time. In terms of Canada, we'll see an ambivalence in Canada. We have the Mulroneys of Canada, which he is a champion. And Canada in the 1980s, in the 1990s, was a champion of globalization. Mm -hmm. Because of Canada, we have a, an accession clause in the last chapter of NAFTA to get in third uh, countries. No one came, but, but there is there. And, 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 and Canada was the champion. Nowadays, I'm sorry, but I mean, we have the, also Stephen Harper, but I don't see he was a champion of globalization. He imposes visas on Mexican nationals in, in, in a terrible time for Mexico in 2009 in the midst of, of, of the H1N1 crisis that, by the way, that was a North American crisis because the number of people having H1N1 was, I mean, was very alarming, not only in Mexico, but in the entire North America. If you look at a map, and if you look at the cities with more than 500 people infected, you'll see that North America was all on red. So that, why, why was that? Well, because of the connectivity between Canada the U.S. and Mexico. Mm -hmm. So the connectivity is there. And, uh, and but there's some conservative people in Canada. There's people that they prefer the bilateral way. To me, that's short-sighted because we have a lot to win. When we negotiated NAFTA, there were about only 40 regional agreements, trade regional agreements. Nowadays, there's almost 300. So now the world is basically yeah. trading, regionally speaking. So North America could be very strong if the tree remained there, but, but we don't know yet. Do I'm sometimes optimistic, sometimes yeah. negative about, about Canada, because I know there's a lot of stake to Canada, uh, but, I, but I believe that we have a lot to gain, Canada and Mexico, especially in trying to balance Mr. Trump. And if we don't remain together, I don't think we have the power to balance Rafa, Mr. Trump. Rafa, you mentioned the four border states which support over a million U.S. jobs because of the U.S.-Mexico ties. And at the Latin America Center here, we've been, we've been in the midst of a Why Mexico initiative where we have a number of different social media tiles and, 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 and other things. And, and one of our tiles you probably saw before coming in today's event was not only is it those four border states, but there's over 30 states that have Mexico as a number one or number two trade yes. partner. Um, and, and on that and point, I and I want to... I want to agriculture. I mean, I don't think we talked important. about... Yeah, right. Well, that's my question to you, Paula. Oh, and I, actually, okay. question for you, and then I want to <laughs> open up to questions from the audience. So please start thinking of your questions. Uh, want to make sure, I want to make sure that we have uh, time to uh, address the number of questions out there. But question, my, Paul, my question to you is on industries in the United States. What would be some of the industries in the United States that would suffer greatest from any type of... Um, not only uh, 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 breaking apart of NAFTA or from or from moving toward toward, toward bilateral with Mexico, how would this? You, know, you mentioned agriculture. What are some of the other industries that would be most severely affected? The American workers that would be most severely affected. Well, that's two different things because as I uh, as I really want to emphasize that when in when it comes to manufacturing, um, the numbers of jobs um, in a successfully global. Uh, 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 sector uh, will be reduced. We will see robots where mm -hmm. there might have been people before. Yeah. So uh, uh, you will increase and, and see increasing production and shipments and exports, um, but you may not see the concomitant increase in jobs um, in those particular situations. Um, electronics. 
um, we see it every day with televisions, mm -hmm. flat panel displays, um, the assembly of all every you know electronic uh, uh, fa factories that are assembling. Uh, and doing value added as well in Mexico, but often with the the um, semiconductors and the very high value added uh, input that may be uh, reflective of American U.S. values, I should say, value added um, coming across the border, not just once but two or three different times before you finally see the assembled product. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, if you disrupt that, um, I think we basically, as a, as, a, as a continent, as a continental economy, will lose to competition in Asia. Uh, and I think that's across the board. And, and as far as the agricultural goods, I mean, uh, we've heard from the, the already the Texas cattlemen. You said if you wait long enough, Rafael, that you'll start to see others who will push back. And you're already hearing Texas cattlemen who are basically got their, uh, you know, their some of their cattle on, on the other side of the border yes. and uh, moving back and forth and coming back as stakes. And um, the uh, likewise, of course, uh, corn, and we are already seeing the threat to our agricultural uh, uh, sectors here in the United States, and the representatives speaking out and speaking up now, uh, concerned that uh, Mexico is indeed shopping uh, in uh, Argentina, Brazil, elsewhere it is, it is. for the corn. Uh, that had been uh, really uh, responsible for uh, much of our re uh, exports uh, and our export numbers. So uh, it, it, they are not many jobs, again, particularly in the agricultural area. Um, but uh, I, I don't think we, we can afford to um, shoot ourselves in the foot, if you will, by unwinding um, all of the uh, uh, progress that we have made. Yes, there needs need to be done to deal with the anxiety, but it's, um, and, and yes, we can up, upgrade um, the trade agreement, but we should, I feel, um, be seeing this as an opportunity to uh, expand uh, and not come back with a fallback position that will I want to, Peter, give you a quick word and then open up to questions from the audience. Well, that's why the talk of border tax right now is, is unhelpful. Uh, and I, but that's not to say that the, the U.S. Uh, Congress and, and Senate aren't going to have a lot to say about these negotiations <laughs> as they progress. Constitutionally, they're entitled. Uh, and absolutely. And, and the pillars of, of the checks and balances in your country are very strong. But yes. I, 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 one of the areas that we haven't touched on that I think will figure prominently is energy and talk of pipelines, right. and this affects mm -hmm. all three countries in North yes. America. Uh, being energy independent uh, in America is one thing. Being North American energy independent, in my view, should be the goal. And uh, the way to achieve that is, is closer cooperation. That, that also includes closer cooperation around uh, climate change, around the environment, mm -hmm. around emission standards. Uh, because, you know, I, I'm, we're yet to see uh, what the president is going to do with the Paris uh, Climate Change Accord. It's, it's a pretty clear signal that's coming already that there's a backing away from that, as we saw with Kyoto. Um, that's problematic, because if, if we're not holding to account China, Pakistan, India, ourselves, 
we're whistling past a graveyard on some of these important environmental issues. We've got to be working together on that. Going it alone in that area is disaster. And, and on ener energy, there, you know, energy, U.S. energy exports to Mexico could, in and of themselves, erase the trade deficit that Correct. we have with Mexico if we just leave things alone. And energy me, is yeah, not uh, covered. Yeah, in I'm, I'm going to stop the panel for a moment mm -hmm. because I want to make sure that we have questions from the audience here. Good. Um, because we, I'm sure we have many. Um, and there'll be microphones circulating. I see Diana Nagarpani, if you could just, uh, just um, introduce your name and your question. And I'm actually going to take two, I'll take three oh, questions together. Uh, the first question here and the, and the second row, Roberta. If the problem is, I'm Diana Negroponte from the Woodrow Wilson Center. If the key political problem is jobs, mm -hmm. is there within the NAFTA the capacity to raise additional revenues to invest in the skills retraining which we need to meet the new economy? Great, thank you. I'm going to take a couple of questions okay. together because there's many questions. Uh, I see, I, saw, I think the next hand I saw was in the middle of the third row, and then I'm going to go to you, sir, in the, I think, probably 10th row on, the, on, on that side. Hi, Brett Fortin with Inside U.S. Trade. Um, how will the idea of renegotiating NAFTA bilaterally with separate negotiations happening between Canada and Mexico, how, how will that impact um, how that renegotiation is going to happen. I mean, is, is that a realistic way to do so? I mean, how could you deal with issues such as rules of origin um, in, in that fashion? And there's also been a lot of talk about other issues cropping up the border adjustability tax, immigration. I mean, is it possible that those other areas kind of poison the well in, in terms of th this renegotiation that they overshadow um, any possible update with NAFTA? Okay, thanks. And then I saw a question uh, all the way back in the, th the right side of the about middle. Hi, Kirk Scher with uh, Clearview Strategy Group. I'd like to ask the flip side of the question that Diana Negroponte asked, and that is from the Mexican point of view, there's a lot of concern that wage growth over the past 20 years hasn't been adequate. So the flip side of the jobs equation there is lack of wage growth. How would a renegotiation address that? Okay, thanks, Kirk. Um, let me start off with, uh, Paul, would you like to, there's a question, uh, Diana's question, is there capacity in NAFTA for, uh, for, for funding for a greater worker capacity building? Uh, the questions on the impact of, of a, a bil going bilaterals rather than the multilateral, and could there be other issues that cloud discussion? And then Kirk's question about the uh, lack of wage growth in, in, in Mexico and how that uh, uh, is part of the discussions. Um, um, start with you, Paula. You are um, right to put this together. Um, the, the need to deal with the adjustment that comes from uh, trade, um, there has never been, if you will, um, a, um, a tax or uh, that has been kind of put aside. Um, it, it, it talk about the, the wall and how the wall that President Trump wants to build, he has suggested that with the, a 35% tariff on Mexico's goods that um, he could uh, uh, pay for the wall, if you will, but uh, that 
that means you're taking money out of the American consumer's pocket when you take it out that way in a tariff. Um, so what your challenge is is to the Congress and to the President uh, when it comes to allocating funds for this. And it's, uh, there are many excellent proposals that academics have made um, that deal with both wage insurance or various ways of assisting those who are impacted not only by changes from trade, but changes from technology. Um, but n Congress has never shown a willingness to allocate that, those kinds of funds. And uh, as you know, we as a nation compared to other industrialized nations um, basically think that you know, the, the individual could, should kind of deal, deal with these disruptions. And I, I happen to believe that uh, that has brought about the toxic situation that we um, saw in this last election. And um, uh, I, I think that that bigger competitiveness agenda, the bigger bargain, um, uh, is something which I think you have to turn back to President Trump and ask now, what are you going to do um, in addition to just going back to trade negotiations? Um, yeah. and it, but you've got to remember that the, cons the role of the consumer here. Uh, when it when it comes to uh, allocate you know allocating uh, a new tax or a new tariff for this, Peter, you want to ask ask the question on, on the impact of, of bilaterals sure. and then Rafael on wage growth in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Just very briefly though, to Ms. Negroponte's question about skills training, job training, I don't believe uh, in the reading of the original uh, Canada U.S. and and brought it out to NAFTA in uh, in '93 that it did really envision the impact of technology and that mm -hmm. sector, uh, not only in automation, but just the number of jobs. And, uh, and as the Secretary said, this, this is an area of modernization, I think, that should happen and will happen in the negotiation. Thank you, by the way. The Woodrow Wilson Institute does remarkable work on these exact issues and has been a great friend to Canada. On the negotiation, the, uh, the signal that came very clearly from uh, Foreign Minister Christia Freeland yesterday was that we're not going to throw Mexico under the bus. This is not going to be a go-it-alone bilateral. Uh, however, having made that declaration, a lot will depend, of course, on the signals from the White House. It's easy to make that declaratory statement. The concern will be the propensity of the President to prefer, his stated preference is bilateral type relations in trade negotiations. And you know, going back to square one, he wants to win. He wants America to come out with at least 51% better than whoever he's negotiating with. And so if, that's, uh, if that means starting way over here and making quite extreme statements to get back to middle ground, that's a negotiating tactic. That's not new, but it's certainly part of the president's personality, if I can say that, and he's going to negotiate hard. Canada and Mexico are going to have to come to the table with clearly enunciated uh, positions well-articulated, well-backed mm -hmm. up with facts, and let the negotiating begin. Let me say three things. First of all, there's an emerging consensus in Mexico, uh, in, in every circle, that, the, that if Trump were to denounce NAFTA, it would not be the end of the world for Mexico. Why is that? Because we will have the WTO. Then 
tariffs for Mexican exports to the U.S. will raise between 2 and 3 percent, mostly 2 percent. So it's, it's not the end of the world. Except on the small trucks. But still, I mean, but then on the small trucks, there's, I mean, it cut both ways because then the U.S. auto industry will have a tough They'll time. Scream. I mean, yeah. the Ford and General Motors, they would, I mean, out of business. So, <laughs> but, but, so that's one. Second, I would say, you're right. I mean, the gap between Mexican salaries and U.S. salaries hasn't been breached, hasn't been closed in the last 20 years. NAFTA ha hasn't done much. But if you take another index, for example, the Human Development Index, you will see that Mexico is really breaching the gap between the U.S. in the last 20 years. What is that? Why is that? Well, because education has increased a lot in Mexico and also health. Now, about 95 million of Mexicans are covered by, by, uh, by Seguro Popular, by this uh, very low but important mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, health uh, insurance. Uh, so, this, so this is a new Mexico. And also because of that, I mean, you'll see it. I mean, there's been a lot of Mexicans coming back, some of them unwillingly because of deportation, but some of, some of them because if you, don't, if you don't have health here, if you don't have education services here, they, they better go back to Mexico. So that helps to explain why in the last seven years there's been zero net migration of Mexicans into the U.S. And uh, you're right, the good thing about renegotiating NAFTA is that now we have to have, I mean, a labor agreement within NAFTA, and then we really could talk about sal uh, salaries. A new, there's a new emerging consensus in Mexico. The, the mayor of Mexico City, I mean, he, he, he had, he's been talking about raising the, the minimum wage in Mexico City. He's getting somewhere. And I will say, but now you're listening about this from every single political uh, side. You finally listen the, the, the Treasury Minister of Mexico talking about this, and we all know that we have to bridge that gap between Mexico and the U.S. Let's face it, it's a, if we compare it, the salaries between the auto industry, here in the U.S. is about $20 per hour, and in Mexico it's $2 per hour. We know that that's not fair. We have to change that. Uh, but it, but then, I mean, uh, we believe that we have to update that, uh, NAFTA, and we could see this as an, as an opportunity for updating that. But I would, I would also say, too, that NAFTA has helped to lift the boats of all, of all Mexicans, right? I mean, there's still, of course, there's, there's wage disparity, just given the, the nature of the two economies and, and just the dramatic difference from the, from the get-go, right? But there's, we have to realize that, Na, that Me our relationship with Mexico is not a zero-sum game, right? That lifting mm -hmm. the boats of Mexicans helps the United States and it helps North America. You want, a, you want a more prosperous country just on your southern border. And so I think that that's important to, to take into account of a, a piece coming out in National Review that talks to us well about um, Mexican education. You have more engineers now graduating uh, in Mexico than you, than you do in Germany. I mean, there, there has mm -hmm. been significant educational advances, significant advances in, in technology. We did a, a report at the uh, Latin America Center last year on innovation in Mexico and Guadalajara as an innovation hub. So lots of interesting things are happening. We have uh, four more minutes. Uh, we want to end on time. So I want to take two more questions. Uh, I saw in the about middle, uh, Simon, about middle middle way, and then, sir, your question here in the third row. We'll take those uh, quickly. Thank you. Uh, Simon Whistler from Control Risks. The question, so what is achievable? What is genuinely achievable in terms of negotiations and not taking just NAFTA into account, but also the broader immigration and, uh, and border security issues and the like? Because you can't 
although we focused heavily on NAFTA, the, the two are going to be inevitably intertwined. And I asked that specifically in the context of the political objectives, specifically of both the US and Mexico, of any negotiations, and also the timeframes available. If you, we talked about AMLO a little bit, but the election campaign in Mexico starts in earnest very, very soon. So that's inevitably going to have a huge impact on the way Mexico approaches these negotiations. So what is it genuinely achievable as, as a result of that? Thank you. Then, sir, here in the third row. Hi, uh, Rafael Bernal from The Hill. I'll make this quick. Uh, Mexico opened consultations on NAFTA. Is this jumping the gun or is this getting a head start? Okay, great. So what's in trivial terms of negotiations in Mexico opening up its consultations? Um, Rafael, why don't I start with you? If you can keep your response to about uh, 30 seconds. Yeah, uh, what I would like to say is that the Mexican negotiators now, they, 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 have, uh, they are under a lot of uh, pressure. Uh, this is a sharp difference from the 1990s when we negotiated NAFTA. I mean, then we have a, a, a unique party system. We, we, we had a, an a, authoritarian system. Nowadays, the Senate is very much there. For example, a Mexican senator, along with another 10 senators, Armando Rios Peter, an independent senator, he just, uh, he just uh, put a bill in, in the Senate about substituting the U.S., uh, the corn that we import from the U.S. That is really caught in the eye of, for example, of, 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 of Senator Chuck, Chuck, uh, Chuck Grassley. Grassley. And, uh, and he said, we have to be careful with Mexico. Yeah. So, so again, I mean, there's, there's ways for Mexico to proceed. And the important thing that there's a consensus that we can live without NAFTA. Hopefully, that will, that will not be the case. But if this is a negotiating uh, position of Mr. Trump, seems to me that Mexico has now a good response because we're but we know that we can, negotiate, we can live and survive without NAFTA. Paula, what's, what's, um, what's, what's achievable in terms of NAFTA? I think this, uh, the fact is that President Trump um, uh, taught us that, uh, again, you know, that he or she who uh, uh, shapes the debate wins the debate. And he made this election about tr trade and now he's making um, this discussion uh, here today uh, about a trade agreement. Um, and I believe that uh, with uh, enough people in place, civil servants and, and skilled people, that we can see, um, uh, as I said earlier, lemonade out of lemons. But I think <laughs> We, uh, the, the president is, not, is going to increasingly have to hear from members of Congress who in turn are hearing from their constituents how they are being impacted. Um, and uh, and, and we're be, for the first time in a long time, the CEOs have become incredibly outspoken about immigration on this H-1B visa stuff, the tech companies and the financial companies, we got to see the same CEOs mm -hmm. um, start talking, as along with the agricultural uh, uh, multinationals, uh, about what this can mean if we do not get a success. Yeah, an imperative because of business, the business community has been relatively silent uh, They've been up to this very point. Peter, silent. I'll give you the last word. Well, a world without NAFTA is a much more difficult world for all three sure. countries. Um, but I agree with the fact that, you know, all three countries are going to go into these negotiations with their, their own very specific issues. And, and on some things, uh, we may have to part company. Uh, but that doesn't undermine the fact that the overall agreement can be improved. Security is inseparable. 
Uh, immigration is going to be inseparable. Labor mobility. Uh, I mean, this is why Canada has a much more diversified trade relationship. Under Stephen Harper, we negotiated 30-some trade agreements, including the CETA, which uh, allows a country of 37 million people to have access to a 500 million person European Union economy. Uh, so that's not to suggest we can go it alone, but it is to suggest that you need to diversify your trade relations. That's what Mexico is doing as well. Uh, TPP, uh, while dead for the United States, is not dead for Canada. Uh, so there are, other, are other trade relationships that, uh, that can factor into this as well, including bringing the UK into a North American trade relationship. Yeah. Well, I, I want to end by, I want to uh, thank my colleagues in the Latin America Center, Juan Felipe Celia, who uh, put this event together, and, and, uh, and Andrea Murta, our Deputy Director, uh, as well as the entire Latin America Center team and the uh, events team here at the Atlantic Council. And I thank uh, Secretary Gutierrez for his very uh, insightful uh, remarks, and again, Secretary, for your leadership uh, on these issues. Uh, my colleague, Peter Schechter opened the event, and of course, this uh, incredibly esteemed all-star uh, panel, Peter McKay, Paul Stern, and Thank Rafael Fernandez-DeCastro, and of you. course, all of you for joining us today. We will, as Peter said at the outset, this is an issue that is incredibly important for the Atlantic Council and for the Latin America Center, and we will be continuing to uh, have uh, events and publications and other types of social media awareness about the importance of the uh, Mexico relationship in North America overall. So thank you all for being with us today.